Hey everybody, I'm Anthony Dodd-Mantle and you're listening to CinePod, which is a podcast for cinematographers and other filmmakers. And I'm here today to have a little chat about whatever you want to talk about. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya, how's it going? It's going really well. How's it going with you? I could not be more excited because uh, I think when we started this podcast, we might have had a conversation that went something like this. Uh, Hey, maybe one day we could get somebody like Anthony Dodd-Mantle on the show. And now... We have Anthony Dodd-Mantle on the show. That's right. Anthony Dodd-Mantle on the show today, and we're going to get to it in just a couple of minutes. You know, uh, really, really wonderful conversation. I'm not going to say anything else about it. I'm just, you know, you're going to get to it in, in a couple of yeah, minutes but, here. But, but for people who aren't familiar with his work, firstly, what's wrong with you? Secondly, one of the forerunners of the Dogma 95 movement, he shot, uh, I believe, three of the Dogma movies that were official Dogma movies. He shot... A bunch of Danny Boyle movies, including 28 Days Later, including Slumdog Millionaire, for which he won an Oscar for Best Cinematography. First Best Cinematography Oscar to a movie that had been shot digitally. He's got an amazing and storied career. He's worked with amazing directors, and he currently has a TV show that uh, was kind of a water cooler show uh, that just wrapped up a couple weeks ago, and and I had talked about it on the show, and that was The Undoing. That, that's right. That's a really good quick rundown of a uh, preview of what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about all that sort of stuff. Such a fascinating guy. But first, let's get to our George Foyt close focus segment, which, uh, you know, some weeks we struggle to come up with what we're going to talk about. This week was not one of those weeks. Oh, no, my God. No, no. This is, uh, this is a big news story. And it's not directly related to COVID, although indirectly COVID's fingerprints are all over this crap. That's true. That's that's very true. Uh, you know, as a direct result of uh, theater closures, as a direct result of uh, the pandemic, HBO, HBO Max specifically, is going to be the recipient of a huge windfall of stuff. In fact, the entire Warner Brothers 2021 slate of movies are going to go day and date release on HBO Max. Yeah. And I don't know if it's genius or madness. I don't know if this is the entertainment industry uh, going with the trends or self-immolating, and I guess only time will tell, but it is extraordinarily controversial. I mean, let's think about way back six months ago when Universal released Trolls World Tour on VOD when there was no chance anyone was going to be seeing it in theaters and made a quick hundred mil. And AMC, I think it was AMC or it was a few theater chains were like, we're not going to ever have Universal movies in our theater chains ever again and then they came to some kind of an agreement and you know everyone's happy again and you know this is nuts when you think about it like this is a bold or extremely stupid move oh yeah and theater exhibitors are uh, are rightfully freaked out panicked and some of the production companies that were involved essentially who made movies and you know mostly financed some movies themselves like legendary pictures is basically they're saying they're going to sue they're going to sue over this this was not something that they were consulted about they put up 75 percent of the money on on i think it was dune and uh they don't want it to see that you know their back end's probably going to be tied to profits and that's all going to change if it goes day and date direct to hbo max 
All I can say is that these streamers must just be extraordinarily profitable. Like, I do wonder if there's an antitrust concern or a vertical integration concern in that HBO or uh, Warner Brothers is making the movies. They own the means to make the movies. They own the studio where it's made. And then they own the outlet where it's shown, which back in the whatever, I think it was the 1930s, uh, the studio system was broken up because they owned the movie theaters. I don't remember exactly what decade it was. Maybe one of our listeners will correct me, but it was something that I had to learn in film history class once upon a time, which was that at one time you had a situation where like Paramount owned movie theaters, Warner owned movie theaters. And so basically you could only see a Warner movie in a Warner movie theater. And uh, it was, it was seen as a monopoly. It was broken up. This is the same exact thing. It's just piping it into your living room instead of uh into a movie theater. I mean, there are movie theaters that are owned by studios in LA. We have uh, famously Disney owns the El Capitan theater, but in general movie theater chains are not owned by studios. Yeah, that's a tricky one. And um, it's one of the things that was specifically forbidden as uh, part of that landmark decision to break up the uh, exhibition and production of motion pictures into uh, separate entities. So, and and by the way, I thought it was actually somewhat newsworthy and I believe it happened today. uh, No less than Christopher Nolan, who has spent most of his career at Warner Brothers, who Warner Brothers went along and according to their contractual obligation, released his movie Tenet only theatrically. So it's not even available even now in VOD. He criticized this and said HBO Max was the worst of the uh, streaming channels, which I don't necessarily agree with I, that I disagree. criticism. Definitely. I think it's a perfectly fine streaming channel. Wish it was on Roku. Still isn't on Roku, but it uh, it, it is a perfectly uh, functional, awesome streamer. And I'm also interested as to why they're not going to do the uh, the Disney Plus route with these first run movies, basically. Or maybe they are. Where you know, like when uh, Disney Plus released Mulan, it was with a thirty dollar premium to even if you were already subscribing to Disney Plus. I wonder if that didn't succeed. Interestingly, I just noticed that Mulan is now on Disney Plus with no premium, so you can just watch watch Mulan if you got Disney Plus, but are they going to have no windowing on there? Are they not going to do any kind of upcharge? Because it's my understanding, too, that when they do that, they're sharing some of that revenue with the, with the theater chains. You know, uh, for anyone who, any of our listeners who is a Simpsons fan, they do a wonderful skewering of uh, the HBO and Showtimes uh, in an episode where they call it HBO time. And they have just parody after parody of the different shows and the entire landscape sort of of the premium cable, because I believe the episode was uh, created at a time before there was streaming. But really, all we have now is premium cable without the cable. It comes in via, you know, maybe your Wi-Fi signal that which, you know, some people are, are wireless now for their Internet, for their homes, depending on who your your provider is, uh, or it comes in in a Cat5 cable instead of a coax mm. cable. But but anyway, here's the thing. The people who are behind all of this uh, are seeing their traditional revenue models highly disrupted in a very, very short period of time. Now, if everyone is 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 so profitable, as profitable as, as we think they are, all of this is just, you know, uh, going to be chalked up to four or five, maybe six bad quarters. And then really, it's going to go back to business as usual. In fact, even in this, uh, the, the, the article that we're, we're talking about here, uh, featured on Deadline, talking about the uh, switch to the day and date format, 
Warner Brothers hasn't said they're not going to go back to or continue other forms of releasing. They just have said, hey, 2021 slate, this is what we're doing. I think it'll be very interesting to see what happens in this game of chicken for millions and millions, hundreds of millions, potentially billions of dollars at the box office. I, I, I don't know what's what, what it's going to be, but it won't be boring. And there's a lot of people who are going to be paying very close attention to, to what mm-hmm. happens next. I mean, I, I think that we all crave normalcy back in our lives And when it's safe to do so, we're all going to want to go back to see the movies that are designed to be seen in a big in a big theater. We're going to want to see them there. You know, I want to see the the new The Batman on a big screen. I, I feel like having seen the trailer for the Dune remake, that that's something I really want to see on a big screen. And I'm bummed out that I can't. You know, the same could be said for the new Wonder Woman movie. Like there, there's a whole bunch of movies. I, I don't know about the new Matrix, honestly, uh. If I'm being very honest with all of our listeners, yes. I really only liked the first Matrix, but I probably would see the fourth one. Uh, you're you know. a completionist. You just you got to know how it ends. I, I I don't know that Matrix matrices two and three were not so beloved by me that I would have lined up to see them opening night, but I would have done that for Dune. And I you know there, there's a lot of the movies that are going to be coming out like this that I would have moved heaven and earth to go see on on the screen, which is actually the real. Problem when you have a baby uh, <laughs> you have to actually move heaven and earth to go see something on the big screen but hire, hire um, a sitter yeah. <laughs> hire a sitter and plan plan a lot and then hope you don't fall asleep during the movie because you're too sleep starved like oh this room is so dark and and relaxing i'm so relaxed explosion 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 doesn't matter yeah um Uh, anyway well yeah we'll we'll be seeing this this drama unfold and will warner brothers be the only studio that takes this gamble or will uh we see universal do this with peacock you know are we going to see disney do more of that with disney plus they all have their own uh streamer and also will we see kind of an, an antitrust suit uh line up against these companies for basically having a yet another vertical integration it's a good question time will tell uh, it seems to me that the vertical integration antitrust uh, has become la- more and more lax as the tv stations and newspapers and everyone else oh everything got deregulated and yeah. i mean it starts in the 1980s with ronald reagan they just deregulated everything in, in in the fcc and broadcast and there have been upsides to that because that enabled cable to kind of send us the awesome premium content that we love on cable uh, without being fcc regulated so, you know so we could see you know stuff that wouldn't even get an r rating if you if you put it in front of the MPAA for violence and sex and cursing swear words. <laughs> um, well, I mean, well, tel- television w- was by all accounts PG at at the most. So really, you're yeah. you're, you're cutting out about sixty percent of probably all movies or more, sixty to seventy five percent. Yeah, the MPAA rating. Anything, yeah, PG thirteen doesn't make the air you know unscathed. R rated movies end up be, ended up being uh, you know butchered. But I do feel like we see stuff on pay on premium cable and today on Amazon Prime or Netflix that would never have gotten a theatrical release because the MPAA would have been slapped it with an NC-17 rating back in the day. So, you know, uh, the deregulation in a way gives us more content and more diverse content. But on the other side, it enables studios to kind of do this monopoly thing that they are want to do. Why wouldn't they want to do it? They can control the means of production. They can control the distribution. They make all the money. And they, and they don't actually sell the product when they sell it to you. They actually don't give you anything other than the experience. They still keep and hold all the rights. Sounds like somebody saw Mank. (laughs) Guilty. Saw Mank. I really enjoyed Mank. Okay. Anyway. Okay. Well, well, we can talk about that next time. Let's get to the interview with Anthony Dodd Mantle. 
Here is Anthony Dodd-Mantle. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. We could not be more excited uh, to introduce our next guest, Anthony Dodd-Mantle. You have been one of our bucket list DPs probably when we first started doing this seven years ago. You were one of those people that we were like, maybe one day we could get Anthony Dodd-Mantle on here if we don't suck at this for long enough. So thank you. A thousand thank yous for coming on board. That's absolutely my pleasure, guys. And um, hit me hard and hit me below the belt and ask me what you want. I'll do the best I can. (laughs) We're going to ask you all the hard-hitting journalism questions we always ask. You are so welcome. There, there's so much to ask about you and, and uh, before we recorded I kind of listed off my agenda which I usually don't do I, I don't know if we're going to get to everything because you have such a broad and amazing filmography and honestly I feel like probably starting mid 90s ish and going through today one of the most influential cinematographers in the world including winning best cinematography for the first time ever for a film shot digitally which is no small feat but I kind of want to start with just kind of the general philosophical question about your approach to your work when you're given a script what is it that you see as you're reading it how do you start turning the words into pictures in your head well that was a hell of a beginning thank you for all that um you know i'm fortunate enough now to be approached you know with more scripts than when i first started in the business Uh, i started late in the business but i remember sort of craving and praying and going tonight with my cup of cocoa and with a woolly hat on in scandinavia praying that somebody tomorrow would come with a good script to me and you know i'd be lucky and stuff like that and a lot of people in our business not just cinematographers but filmmakers indie filmmakers everybody knows what i'm talking about you start up hoping and praying that the right story comes along because whether you're doing sound or editing or shooting or whatever you know it it does start it doesn't end with a good script but it starts with a good script as a platform so i used to dream a hell of a lot about that and gradually um through a mixture of coincidence luck and the odd sort of spice of talent once in a while i, I managed to sort of start to do stories that really meant something to me and the more they ignite something in oneself as an individual the more that's going to stimulate and hopefully contribute to the film being being better and uh, I'm now in a situation where I get not bombarded but I get approached quite a lot and of course fortunately for me there's a good standard there because I've I've got a track record of trying to do the best I can over a few years so I get a few good scripts very very varied and I would say the underlying approach I do have to the words on the paper it's the same now as it was earlier where I had very little to select and choose from. It's still a kind of relationship. It's kind of an equation between specifically what exactly the script is and what it is about, because that's always going to be a new world to me, a whole new door that opens up and it's a new territory and a new story that's magic and nothing I know about. I have no notion of what it is until it comes. So that's the first innate product. It's the script itself and what it is from A to Z. Apart from that, there's, a, there's always a subconscious and weird philosophical, whatever you want to call emotional link between what that script is about and what it is and who I am as an individual, both as a human being, as, a, as an artist, as a communicator, whatever you want to call me. And thirdly, but equally important, I think over the years I've discovered, I didn't know it so much earlier on, but now I do know that I'm also subconsciously drawn to scripts that apart from having those first two initial essences that attract me the script itself and how I relate to it as a person there's also a necessary rapport between what that script is and what it's about and the world I live in today the external world around me politically socially humanitarian everything everything that's going on because I'm ultimately functioning like I'm in this hotel room now in lockdown I'm talking to you about my career and celebrating sort of you know a a whole laundry of life behind me but I'm sitting actually in a lockdown 
quarantine room, you know, in a deserted London. It looks like 28 days later out there when I look out the window. And, uh, and that all affects me. So when I, if, I, if you send me a script now and you're a writer and you send me um, a remake of Ben-Hur or something, I might be affected by the fact that the, the streets of London are, are bare and it's never going to come back and I might not want to make a film about, you know, chariots and stuff like that, etc. Do so you understand what I mean? So the same kind of initial response in me is the same, even though I'm lucky enough to be attracted more to more scripts and I can choose a little bit more, I can still make the same mistakes. I can get attracted to the wrong thing or get distracted or, or go the wrong way. But uh, so far, generally speaking, so good. Well, like when you're given a script like, and we want to talk about The Undoing first anyway, so let's talk about The Undoing a little bit. When you're given a script for something like that, what is it that you see as you're reading it in terms of like, at at what point in your process do you start turning the script into, here's what it should look like? Where does that come from? Okay, so let's talk about The Undoing because that's the most recent thing we can talk about right now. That came to me a moody, probably November day in Scandinavia, and I was... um, kind of in the process of re-establishing my life post a a traumatic personal thing in my life where I had a fire and, you know, we lost everything material in my world and stuff like that. That's what it is, but that's basically, as I say, that's where I was. I came out of that. My wife and I and my family were okay, but, you know, we were rebuilding a life on every single level. And along came Susanna with this uh, this script written by David Kelly and asked me if I'd be interested in doing it. I knew Susanna, that beer as a director. I'd been through school almost parallel time to her, so I knew of her. I've done a cod- the odd project with her, but nothing big. So we knew about each other. I know her ups and downs and her fortes. And um, I just basically took the script and read it very fast, as I usually do. I speed read first, and then if I fall asleep too many times, I just politely you know, pass and put it away. And if not, then I, then I, uh, I read it again a little bit more slow, paying a bit more attention and a little bit more, you know, engaged in it. I think that's the way I have to work because I read everything myself and I don't have people reading for me. Like some people don't like to say they do, but they do. And in the case of The Undoing, the, um, the script was about a world I knew very, very little about. About the closest I ever got to these kind of condominium weird worlds of lavishly rich people, you know, in their lavishly rich debonair costumes up in these towers around Central Park. The closest I got to them was, you know, sitting with my burger down in the park, staring up at them in some freezing cold January morning in Central Park, wishing I could go up and have a look at them. And now because I'm a photographer and I'm allowed sometimes to go into these people's worlds on the, on the demise of it being a, a location scout, I've managed to come into this world that I was extremely attracted towards. I was not attracted to the wealth and the sinister, dark, old money world of these characters that basically wander around the script in The Undoing, but I was extremely drawn to the fact they do exist and within their own little protected magical worlds, they can get up to the same no good business as anybody else can in any walk of life in New York, which is a metropolis that really fascinates me. So here we have not downtown Lower East Side, or and I, you know, I've done so many weird things like going back to Harmony Corinne and Queens and you know Junior Donkey Boy. I've been in New York a few times doing very very different things, and this was suddenly Upper East Side, which to me is, I confess, the most least attractive place I'd want to be in New York uh, if I would be quite honest and put my head on the block I can see the attraction but and I like the artwork and some of the cafes but I wouldn't want to live there personally because I'm just a different kind of person but it was about that it was about this privileged apparently happy couple happy family and as David Kelly does so well you know not as not everything is what it seems it's a thriller a whodunit that was to be adapted a great deal along the way by Susanna uh, but uh, it drew me in 
straight away. It drew me in, and I was coming from, I said, from a, a Scandinavian, bohemian world and uh, coming to New York, which I knew well, but I didn't know this part of the world. I found it was interesting. And one of the things that struck me about uh, The Undoing, and I, I watched, I didn't read anything about it. I didn't, you know, I knew nothing walking in. So I started watching it and I'm like, what is going on here? It didn't feel at first like a lot of the stuff that you shoot, because I feel like you bring, I, I hate to use this word because it's, it's overused, but I feel like there's an edge to the stuff that you do a lot. And I felt like when I started watching The Undoing, it's like very soft and beautiful. And, and I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. It just didn't, it didn't feel like a lot of your work. And then when the thriller aspects of it started coming in and we started getting kind of like inexplicable close-ups of certain things that I, that, that I didn't understand what their significance was at first and stuff like that, I kind of felt like what I expect when I see some of your work. How intentional was it to kind of create the baseline of kind of just like this beautiful, perfect kind of bloomy, sometimes a lot of highlights in the frame kind of kind of thing? Can you talk about kind of the visual construction of it? Yeah, of course. So, you, you know, you mentioned initially it was uh, a, maybe a, a feeling or a sense or a comment that there was a potential, not edge or lack of edge but something between edge and edgelessness in this story i mean basically it's i know what you're saying and i'm not saying that personally at all it's absolutely right and as an artistic thinking poetic wandering technically minded person which is what i basically am you know i come to having suggested the film and to Susanna I, and hbo and all the people that came on board i i basically suggest to to this world that i had to then marry myself to to understand one thing is understanding the script but i actually had to be in that world and wander around and see a lot of locations that are related to the story to actually try and understand what it is about the place and i mean gradually out of that both consciously and subconsciously will develop an alphabet i always call it a kind of personal alphabet a dictionary i call it sometimes but <clears throat> which is to do with me as a person, person is very much to do with the collaboration between me and obviously director, but the whole production, you know, it's to do with, um, it's to do with art, it's to do with design, it's to do with sound, it's to do with the bloody weather in New York, you know, and it's, uh, it's like everything. And uh, yes, you know, what Kelly has written about is a sheen, like a lovely sheen on the surface of, of life, you know, very much uh, adorned with material success and wealth and polish. And like anything, if you dig hard enough and scratch away hard enough, you'll find something down in the basement crawling around that is not altogether harmless. Uh, that's a that's a fact of life. Yeah, right? it's kind of a it's it's a weird. It's like a rich New York Gothic. It's almost like a blue velvet, but set in modern day New York. I mean, I very quickly want to get. I mean, I I kind of love less genre films than uh, a lot of people but I, I can think in terms of films like you know Gotham City about Batman you know Nolan's work on on those trilogies or the, the two main films he did I always sort of see New York from the very first time I visited it as an overworld and an underworld you know it's this, this very obvious great metropolis it's the same in Mumbai even though it's a, it's a developing city that not so many people know but I know Mumbai Bombay very very well and it's like this overworld and underworld really exaggerated by these pin like high rises going up in Mumbai and in New York is that they always used to be big but now they're being overshrouded by these objectionable modern pieces of architecture that are all about paying less in taxes on the service area of the building but anyway whatever so <laughs> when I look at when I look at New York and I see this overworld and underworld I kind of start to look at that and I relate perhaps consciously the character of Nicole and Donald and, and, and Hugh and this whole world, you know, in The Undoing, to this world. And what Susanna and I talked a lot about in the valuable prep we had, because she's very busy 
maybe always in prep on other things, but she was certainly busy on the script and developing that to her own satisfaction. So I was left quite a lot alone with her occasionally and with the rest of the crew and, you know, the production to try and an art department to try and work out how we work. So, so I start to look for our alphabet, as I said, together with Susanna. And I start to think about what symbolises... We're obviously going to spend 80%, 90% of the time in the studio, in the sets, with brilliant actors talking a great deal of time, you know, with a very powerful script. And it's going to be a lot of that. That's the DNA of the script. And I've got to try and find something else outside that and around it, together with Susanna, that doesn't polish, but actually sabotages and, and, and suggests something else, enigmatic underneath and between the lines, between, between the floorboards of their very wealthy world. So we start to talk about the ground level. We start to talk about symbolism in nature, in the architecture, all the energy, that the combustion of this incredible city New York has. We start to look at symbols, and I very much start to, just as I travel to and from recce's and studios, I just stare out of the window and walk the streets and look at things in a different way, starting thinking about my characters, and I go into that tunnel, which is how I work, which is why I always get lost when I'm on a recce, because I never know where the hell I am. And I never cycle to work or even walk to work. I generally get driven because I'm so much in the film that I actually start to live the film, live the characters, and I'm subconsciously looking for stimuli all the time that I can feed into the scripts. And what that led to was a developing project Susanna and I had, together with the art department, developing ideas and themes that would ultimately become very, very important as a characteristic to New York and to the the supporting character to all these walking human beings who are speaking lines and playing the roles in the film. There's this, this beast of a New York that's out there. And what became very ov obvious to Susanna and I very quickly is we would be very dependent on being able to do what we could ourselves outside the buildings, but also adopt a well-functioning splinter unit to help us to go out and shoot these things, which is a really enjoyable task because they get a kind of shopping list from Susanna and myself and, and they're sent off on their you know, on their rollerblades with a little crew to go and poke around, which I used to do when I was doing documentaries. And it's, it's a great way to work. And they come back with good stuff and they come back with less good stuff. And gradually that, you know, that collects together to be a, a nice pile of imaging for the, and relevant imaging, not just, you know, Discovery Channel, no, no disrespect, not just pretty images and, you know, tapestries of beauty. There is some beauty there, but there's also other stuff that can be used as symbolic, metaphorical comment to what's being the main part of the film, which is actors talking in confined spaces. So what did the alphabet for The Undoing, can you give me some examples of what was in the alphabet? Yeah, you? so for The Undoing, I started to write a document, which I've got on my, my window or on my window somewhere, but I want to start sharing it because I know I'll cut somebody out of the, the conversation because I'll press the wrong button. But I basically, <laughs> I basically combined a document with images and thoughts and not necessarily so much... Um, parallels to other films but basically just my, my own library my own pictures or I grab pictures that I think are interesting and manipulate them and show them to Susanna and they're about smoke they're about fog they're about nature they're about weather they're about wind they're about metropolis they're about underworld of the tube you know of the metro they're about people bustling together um high speed uh birds in the trees, you know, um, bridges, traffic, all the metropolis stuff that you've seen before. And it'll be done again and again and again in many, many films, going back to Fat City. And there are many films where you, you know, where great filmmakers have been to New York many times before me and done better jobs. But you start to find that alphabet of, of metaphors 
symbols. Mm-hmm. And I knew I'd be living here. I wasn't living there, but we were working very close to Central Park. So I get into Central Park and watch Central Park from Grace's location, you know, the Donald Donald Sutherland's apartment, looking down from the, the looming balconies like a Valkyrie, you know, down onto the... I'd watch people running and people disappearing in the misty evenings of Central Park. And I watched the lights coming on at a certain time of day. I watched the mist coming in, you know, when the lights come on and go off. And I just study New York and gradually convey that to myself, convey to Susanna, and slowly things get sorted out. They get sorted out. And normally mm-hmm. I'd do that myself in a film or I'd try and do a second unit afterwards or before or like with Danny Boyle, who we work very often together with, I'm I'm disappearing somewhere into the, the fields with the mini crew already now, three or four weeks, I'm not meant to say that, but before we start shooting principal, we go off and do things, you know, because we know each other well. And this is what we try to establish with Susanna, because it was a, a large project that we were working on for the first time. And it was about New York as a character. It, well, and I kept thinking about New York as a character as I was watching it, because there, you know, obviously there's a lot of these uh, kind of gorgeous scenics of New York that kind of put us right right in that world. And it actually kept broadening uh, the scope of it, too, which I thought was I, I didn't think about it while I was watching it, but it really does. You're, you're right. It's a lot of people indoors for the most part having conversations, although it's just lo- loaded with drama and it's it's such brilliant writing but that's where i know as an artist i know six and susanna knows that too and her films are very much about this and that they're, they're close and i, I don't yeah. you know you, it isn't visual it's just sound right but they're close-ups and medium close-ups and she's she hoovers for good reason for a long time dialogue to get what she wants and she has her agenda and she knows what she wants and that does take time it takes time it's hard work it's actually quite industrial it's quite machine-like and it's hard for the actors but they get there it's hard for the crew and it's not the kind of person where you've got like a Tarkovsky or Uzu putting one camera in the corner saying, you know, I get the whole scene from here or we just track there. Mm-hmm. And it's not that kind of film. She doesn't work like that. So, you know, as you come onto a project with her, in this case, it was very true that anything we get outside that is going to be extremely valuable when you're talking about six hours or five or six hours of material for the audience. As someone who comes from mostly shooting features, this is uh, it's a six hour series for for HBO. Now, was it all presented to you? Were you given all six hours uh, of script when you started? I think when I came on, there were four and then slowly five and six started to come and they were eternally adjusted throughout the course of prep and certainly through shooting. That said, I got the beginning and I always had, I have to say something very important to you now as a a cinematographer working on a six-hour project, when you get embedded already in prep artistically and technically into a massive project and you have to really be on the front foot about everything because prep is about preparing yourself for everything and shooting is the release, the physical release, which is a lot easier in my mind. Prep is hell, it's creative hell and it's, it's essential but it's the hardest time. That said, I kind of had to remind myself regularly throughout the whole shoot that how I felt when I read the thing for the first time because I was pretty fascinated and and in doubt about who could do such a thing and which of the characters was capable of what, etc. Perfect who done it material. Yeah. You know, Dashiell Hammett or whatever. And I had to remind myself from a very early stage, even in prep, Anthony, remember this, remember this, because I'm as you get more and more aware and understanding really what happens, some of the some of the sensation goes away and you start strange sen- cynical processes start to take place. I know this is much worse, I think, probably for writers and directors who are working with the the essential product earlier on. You you have to share or somehow filter through this. I know it happens to directors when they're editing for for weeks and months on end afterwards, trying to keep the thing alive in their imagination. It's, It's a difficult thing, but I, more than ever before, I have to say on The Undoing, and I do do mostly films, but I try to approach 
you know, a six hour long format series in the same way. But I was aware of the fact you have to keep it alive and remind yourself this was triggering a very deep interest from my own point of view, even though I now know what happens and I've got to keep that magic. That's quite um, difficult when you're doing long format. I find that quite difficult. Yeah, I mean, and that was kind of what I was building to as well, which is like, you know, when you're making a 90 minute or a two hour movie, you're you're kind of sculpting the whole arc visually. But over a six hour process, I'm assuming you're still kind of coming up with a visual arc and, and, and creating it and executing it slowly. But how onerous is it to kind of keep track of where you are in that? Was it did they shoot episode by episode or did you shoot, you know, did you block shoot the whole thing? Uh, we had to do a bit of blocking and we had to block shoot quite a lot of it. I mean, what number one paramount for me, and I think it's in retrospect, having done another project since, I feel I'm best suited to this kind of work if the director stays the same. That's not always possible. And maybe after one or two episodes, either the director or the DOP might be wanting to run a mile anyway. <laughs> but as, a, as an ideal, I would like to believe up front that I'd like to keep the same director because that's a certain foundation of stability. And I think very often... You know, if it's working well, directors would prefer the same thing, vice versa, on the on the DOP and the, the essential functions. I don't like people when people jump off the boat. It's not my cup of tea. And for anybody who's going to hear this, that's all the way down the line, guys and gals. I don't like people jumping off the boat. If you tr <laughs> you've got to try and stay with it, and that's harder for a four six month project. But you've got to try and do your best to stay there. That is one of the big enemies. But if that is in in place, there's a certain stability in crewing there, which helps me immensely with the designer and the key players. Apart from the intimacy of a, a crew that stay together. That's a beautiful feeling as you start to work very hard for a long time. You, it's like a family. It's like a circus. But I think um, my process is essentially the same, be it a 90-minute or two-hour film for cinema release or a show. I just try desperately hard to break it down in my own personal way as well. I, I, I work very much in analogue. I work digitally, of course, often shoot digitally, but I, I create my scripts very much in an analogue way where because I remember things more when I write. So I make my initial notes digitally and I write on iPads and annotate and stuff like that. But then I get mini scripts and I write in them and I do drawings and prints and it's a bit like going to some kind of a Steiner school with me but I walk around with these things that become very odd and packed with information but that's my way of remembering because I think my memory personally works very well when I look at a at an analogue piece of handwriting when I look at my old diaries which I don't have many but when I do I can remember what the weather was like and I, I can remember what I was doing in, in the world then and when I look at digital writing and an iPad script without, you know, with nothing else on it. I don't remember emotionally the same thing. So I remember better when I have a script. So I work along that way. I, and if it's a six-hour show, I've got six scripts that mount up like that on the table, like a gatto. But I write in them and I try and keep them together and I try and keep them with me like almost like a shamanic, talismanic process. But that's a, that's the way I am. And people laugh at it, but that helps me to remember. And otherwise, be it block shooting, sometimes yes, sometimes no. You've just got to, like actors have to do the same thing. And Nicole, a classic example, I see it now as I watch the show back. Hugh, I see these great actors understanding where they are, probably reminded also by Susanna, the director in this case, you know, where you are in the script. But that's what we have to do as DOPs. You have to do it. Uh, I'd like to go back a little bit and, and focus on something that you said sort of towards the beginning of the interview, which is that you said that you, you came to cinematography later, if I'm not mistaken. Did you? Is that what you said? Yeah. I spent a lot of my youthful years, what I can remember messing around I you know under the vague foggy flag of being inquisitively interested in life but I was pretty all over the place and um I kind of never not worked I kind of worked from the age of 13 14 I've always got out there I didn't get kicked out of the house but I, I kind of like working and kind of looked after myself but I didn't find out what I wanted to do for quite some time and I was 
protected by you know I wouldn't it's not quite upper upper <laughs> upper east side but I had a pretty middle class you know Oxford Cambridge upbringing mum and dad and two brothers and sisters and it kind of looked after me and whatever I said I was going to do or might do or might think about doing they kind of kept a wry smile on the faces of my parents and said yeah you, you know you know you'll be all right and um I wasn't all right for quite some time. I was always surviving monetarily and I was I always had friends and I was fortunate. But uh, I didn't even get into my first kind of academic... I did my high school and shit like that. But I didn't actually get into my first academic serious journey, which was a BA in London uh, in visual communications, it was called. Um, that was from 1981 to 1983 or four. And so I, I was like 25 when I started that. And I'd been around the world a couple of times and I spent a lot of time in India. And I didn't even start taking photographs until I was probably, uh, let me see now, 23 well, I'd done a, I was unemployed in Scandinavia where I'd met a beautiful woman who I fell in love with. So I was over there and out of work, of course. She went out to work and I just had to find something to do to activate my brain, apart from drinking Tuborgs and Carlsbergs, which was equally fun. But I started doing courses and learning Danish and had no idea what I was going to do in life. But I, I delved into photography there and darkroom techniques and kind of got interested in that. Took some really horrendous photographs and developed them even more poorly for a while but I gradually got into it and spent the three years in London uh, in a BA course and really loved photography I loved the kind of parallel link uh, academic link to philosophy and politics had some really heavy dude uh, lecturers and people that came in and out it was an amazing course it was a BA and it wasn't going to get me a job at all but I'd found the desire to make pictures and communicate and I realised at that stage even after those three years it really did have something to do with my clients we had a lot more to do with me even though I was taking a photograph of a double-decker bus going down a motorway somehow that photograph is still always about you and I've learned that through still photography and I still think it's relevant when you're making films on a floor with 200 people and actors and directors so I went from that BA course which, quite, which I got a degree I went back to Denmark and I did a four-year course uh, the National Film School, which is a good time. They were economically strong. They had good facilities. There weren't too many pupils. And I just hit a good wave there that took me through another four years. So I'm now I'm now kind of knocking on 30 or something. And, um, you know, I still haven't had a proper job doing what I'm meant to do and being paid for it. But I remember the sensation coming out, you know, 88, 89, actually working, doing something I wanted to do, and I was being paid. There was a paycheck came through, and it was a... It was a paycheck for doing something that I really loved doing. And from literally from 1988 until now, which is a few years, I've never considered it a job. Some days are harder than others, but I've never considered it a job. But my way into it was by trying to find out who I was. And I used still photography to do that. I went out and photographed the world and learnt that it was about me, but I took an amazing number of photographs, most of them terrible, but that got me into a course and I developed and I just worked hard. Maybe because I was older, as I went through academia, I took bigger steps because I was a bit late starting, but I seem to spend my life surrounded by people younger than me, generally, and um, it kind of keeps me alive and keeps me almost on my toes, half toes, half heels, and uh, that's how I got into it. And then I went through documentary, kind of drama docs, really then. And I did Super 16, celluloid, all celluloid blow-ups, you know, to 35 mil and got a, occasional documentary film prizes and they went out into cinemas briefly. And then I sort of veered into, from learning to not have so much to play with but using it properly, which is fundamental. I learned from documentaries that I could work in fiction and I didn't go into their feeling everything should be handheld and lightweight, but... I was always grateful for what I got in any fiction project and whether I'm working for Warners for 200 you know, million or whatever, I, I'm grateful for what I have and it's not always going to be like that. So that taught me 
it taught me to work with what you have and documentary also taught me to look for the light and not always create it help it you can help it but you have to look for god's light look at what's going on around you and i still practice that on every recce and whether i'm shooting in a naturalistic environment or whatever i still look for the light feel the light and try and build on that as opposed to just imagining everything's going to come off the shelf and you know i illuminate the world the way i want to and control it well uh and I definitely want to hit Julian Donkey Boy in a second, but I kind of wanted to say, like, you didn't stick with the dogma style, the, the style that emerged from dogma, if you will. But you did stay with something from dogma, which is kind of working at the cutting edge of digital cinematography. And shortly, you know, a few years after that, you did uh, 28 Days Later, which I actually saw at Sundance. And uh, and I, I directed a comment. I, I actually I don't usually ask questions at Q&A's, but I asked you a question about how you made it look the way that you made it look. Oh, my God. What did um, I say? To me, like, you know, that was shot on uh, PAL XL1s. And in fact, we actually have a listener question for you directly about that. Just while you're looking for that question, six feet away from me in this hotel room in London in 2020 is an XL1, very dusty and very filthy that I've pulled out of the cellar because I might have to do tests and manipulate it. Believe it or not, you know, the, the, the streets are empty. So 28 years later, it's really out there. But it's kind of ironic this you say that and it's just come back at me. But that was the XL1, yeah. Well, actually, the, the question that was asked is sort of what I was teeing up anyway, and it's from Ryan Bozell, R. Bozell the Graham, at R. Bozell the Graham, who, who hit us up, I guess, on Twitter or Instagram. What were the challenges that you had to overcome uh, with shooting in the XL1 on 28 Days Later? Okay, well, basically, just to, uh, one thing I want to say to you quite quickly, just before I answer that question, What's is that dogma was not the reason for me... Um, you know, developing perhaps with a more open mind than some people digitally, if I put it that way. I learned on celluloid, adore celluloid, still adore celluloid. I'm not just saying that to please my peers, but but I was already messing around with any form I could get hold of, including, you know, you know, CIA or, you know, governmental surveillance cameras when I was like nice. 23, because I've always done that. And I came into the film industry, which is another thing worth saying. I came in from the left with a very artistic background. I'm painters, my family were painters and you know, and it's a mixture, and and I didn't really come up in the industry learning the craft, which actually does become part of your 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 skeleton. And if you learn to carry the the film can down the street in Wardle Street for fifteen years before you get your first crack at the slate, and then you get into the camera team, and it, you that actually forms you far more severely for good and bad than you realise. And I came in with an open heart and an open mind from from the left, and I've never really labelled things, so I was open to digital way before Dogma, but it it got enforced by working with, on Dogville. Uh, Working with Lars, of course, Lars very quickly got very attracted to digital. That's just to put that into space, so you know. Getting back to the question, if that's well, right. actually, real quick though, would you say that your interest, that your pre-existing interest in digital, is one of the things that steered you into jumping into Dogma, where not not every Dogma film was digital, but. Uh, Mifune was shot on 35, right? Yeah, I shot Mifune on 16, Super 16. But, oh, um, I was wrong. I yeah, no, it doesn't matter. All these years. Okay, don't worry, man. But, uh, you know, there was a lot of grain in uh, 35 in those days. But basically, I shot those two films. The first two films I did shoot digitally. In Harmony, it was about, in America, it was about pulling everything apart in the camera, just doing what we could. Whatever the camera menu could do, we played with it. And, and Harmony's a graphic artist, so that's a complete story for itself. But basically, I was delving in, in digital before, actually, you know, Celebration happened because I was just doing little small jobs and it was around the time that strange small consumer cameras were coming. And when I actually, and I was interested in it, but I wasn't going to be governed by it. And when I tested for Celebration, I tested on 35, on 16, on high eight, 
on Super 8 and I tested on these several other digital cameras, small cameras. And I actually very late in the day in testing, after a lot of testing, chose that Sony PC3 because it was something that emotionally responded to my own emotions very quickly. I could have it in the wrist and I could move it. I could even hold two in one, you know, two in one hand or one in each hand and I didn't find any other camera that could do that. And that kind of interesting aspect of operating has actually stayed with me to a certain extent forever because I love that ability when it can happen. So I, I like small light things when I can get away with it. But that was just to put that into perspective and you're right, of the three Dogma films I did, two were digital, uh, very different from each other and the last one was shot on film. But going back to this guy's question, the story between me and Danny Boyle is that he called me after he saw Celebration because he said he'd never seen anything like it. And I think he was probably drawn to the operating, but he'd never seen anything like it. So he just called me on my answer phone and I ignored him for a week or two because I thought it was my friends teasing me. And Danny had just done the beach and I said, Here's a f- he's working with Darius Conji. Who's this guy? It's one of my friends drunk in the middle of the night and I walked the kid and went out with the dog and forgot about it. And he called me twice more and th- that became our friendship, which was lovely. But he, um, he kind of responded to that and very quickly we did two short... BBC dramas were pretty anarchic in their own way visually, both both digital to get to know each other. And then we went straight into 28 Days Later and we knew each other by then. And the reason to answer the question that it became the HL1 is actually, it was not a sort of consortium decision. It wasn't a decision made without me, but the designer, Mark Tilsley, who was a very close friend, and Danny, and the MPC who we were working with then, were sorting out some tests that they'd shot. And I just encouraged them not to look at what was written in the brochures and what was written on the, whatever the equivalent of websites was then, you know, but I was, uh, and the specs. I don't even look at specs too much. I look at specs, I learn them, I understand them, but then I get the hell on with my own tests. And they did the same thing for me, and I joined those tests, and we discovered by testing that, in fact, on paper, what was not necessarily officially the best camera for the job was the camera we wanted for the job and that was the Canon XL and I then attached an adapter to that I ripped the lens out and then put prime lenses on there that I think probably were 16 millimeter lenses and we shot as much as we could on on primes or short zooms and that's how we made 28 days later and if I stopped down too much you'd see the strange grain and fog of the spinning adapter in the foreground very close to the sensor but that's how we shot it, and um, there was a certain, always with Danny, a certain agenda or motive which has very good reasoning behind it. It's not always aesthetic. That was that if we were going to be allowed, and it hasn't happened really since, to shut down London so often for so long at such a you know busy time of day, just before rush hour, uh, he sold me as some kind of cowboy who could do things twice as fast, which of course is lies. And he sold me as this kind of this this maverick with all these digital cameras who get it done so quickly you can't even see him move. You know, we'd have it all done and we'd be out of there in no no time. You know, and that wouldn't happen on film. So the council said yes, and the government said yes. And this is a true story. And we got into these Westminster Bridge and Whitehall two weeks or so before, or whatever a month before Ground Zero. I mean, it was not a peaceful political climate at the time. We were in high security areas with teasers tickling on our, our rib cages as we walked around the roofs of Whitehall. But he sold that as an idea and the government bought it and the council bought it. So it was kind of obligatory. And I have to say, of all the, fil- you know, of the films I've done and of particularly 28 Days Later, the only section that to this day that I've had certain, not nightmares, but qualms about shooting on such a fragile digital format. It's shutting down London for a week and shooting on a tiny weeny little digital sensor instead of shooting on a fat, you know, uh, Hoyder van Hoydemer 70 mil, you know, whatever. Because there is a reason for doing that, because I felt, I kind of did feel it was wrong. I had this discussion with Danny many times and he understood and listened, but there was no way we were going to get around it. We'd sold the idea. And it then became the whole film. So you just embrace it and do it. 
what was the the guiding thought behind uh, shooting on small format digital video for for that? Like the what was it about that look that lent itself to that film? There's no doubt that Twenty Eight Days Later was a sort of slight revisiting of a, a very well used genre. You know, you go back to the earlier zombie films and Romero and the great films that have been made, shot on film, of course. But there's a darkness and a fear and a and an interesting potential in some digital cameras at that time to mess around with the shutters and to create this kind of feeling of violence. It costs in the other end. It costs in resolution and definition without doubt and that is very very visible when you see 28 days 28 days later now i watched it with you in sundance then and i I've, i haven't seen it recently in the cinema i wouldn't mind daring to try and do it but it's it's a tough call mm. but at the time it worked and it was maverick and the project was maverick and it was um it, it was its own world and i think the stuttering and the sh- the shuddering of the shutter and again the lightweight of the cameras which means I could operate in a certain way I could also multi-shoot there were guys running around you know for hours on end you know with their guts hanging out the you know, prosthetic intestines dragging behind them on the grass you know the infected and there was a lot of stuff that we wanted to do with multi-cameras in which we just did not have the money to, to make you know with the budget we had nobody was going to finance big budget on a film like that it was an art film when we started to develop it you know and it became a success we use that to this day as a, as a campaign if we need to get support for shooting certain things in certain ways but it was a it was a it was a small art film that became a success. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about your relationship with Danny Boyle because that led to Slumdog Millionaire, which you won Best Cinematography for, and again the first film ever to win Best Cinematography that had been captured digitally, I believe, on the Silicon Imaging 2K camera. Slumdog was uh, just a little little correction there, but basically you're right. It was and is brandished as the first digitally originated shot film to win an Oscar. It's not completely true because I shot quite a bit on film as well because sometimes it was just easier. But uh, it's it's predominantly a digitally sourced image captured film. You said that when you were younger, you had traveled around the world and had been to Mumbai many times. How much of like your experience and your knowledge of that part of the world kind of played into how you approached it as a cinematographer? First and foremost, because I knew India, my, my entrance into cinematography really via photography came from my nine, 10 month journey through India where I was just travelling and photographing for the first time with a very small still camera and three lenses and all, you know, I didn't even see one picture until I came back home and developed 4,000 pictures. So very different journey than the immediacy of digital. But that was uh, in 1979. I travelled for a year there and I grew, grew to love India and I have kind of family roots there, imperialist roots, colonial roots, but roots all the same and I feel very safe and very at comfort amongst Indian people and in the Indian countryside. Uh, I felt strong, so that kind of fear or illusion or uh, rather sometimes superficial flirt you have with a, a culture that you never really get to know and you just t- touch the top of the iceberg with it and never get deeper, that was, that was a past phase for me. And Danny was coming into India for the first time, was totally gobsmacked for all the right reasons and amazed. And it helped me and maybe helped us that I'd been there before, but we had very great support teams, you know, Indians, you know, advising us. And Danny's very conscious of, you know, asking people, asking local people, always whatever he does, you know, has pe- have people been here before? Is this what they always do? He's quite clever like that. But a combination of him and me was good for that. That's the, that's the approach to it as far as, you know, Slumdog. Stylistically, it was because of the DNA that was developing between Danny and I. We were in the world generally of digitalia at that time and we were going to shoot an immense amount of material with a, an immense amount of people who had actually no dramatic career or background whatsoever and had no linguistic link to us as people apart from an interpreter. So I had to develop a system together with my team that would allow me to be extremely quick and extremely spontaneous and flexible 
uh, and sometimes at the same time have the tools and the ergonomics to help me to think and dramatise a scene almost on the spur of the moment and know how to cut it or help the editors cut it by covering the scene in a certain way because I had no communication or understanding of what was being said half the time. Now that meant that uh, we developed the software, the ideas, the, the hardware, the cameras. We got to that stage where it was pretty nightmarish and sometimes I couldn't see in the picture and I was shooting blind and about 60% of the operating on 28 Days Later is done from I believe it's the old movie cam monitor that you'd have on the top of the camera, which is a little wiggly cable with a beautiful miniature, like little small one-inch monitor. And I framed what became that widescreen Academy Award film <laughs> on a one-inch screen, and you just give it up. You have to give it up and look at what you're looking at. You know your frames, you know your lenses, and give it up to the gods and just follow your instincts. And that's very much what we tried to do on that. So I feel like we've skipped over. I mean, we've mentioned Lars von Trier in passing, but I feel like Lars von Trier is uh, love him or hate him. One of the most provocative and interesting filmmakers uh, working today. Yeah, you said it. That's done. We've got that. That's done. Yeah, you got it right. That's it. No, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And really someone who does like super experimental stuff, like you brought up Dogville, which was sort of done like the traditional play uh, Our Town, where the where it was done on a stage with the rooms and everything uh, marked on the floor. And, uh, you know, his, his work is uh, always surprising and always uh, innovative in, in an interesting way. Now, when you you go to work with him does he have these ideas already fully formed do they come out of the two of you working together to kind of come up with these with the with the visuals i'm also thinking about like antichrist which i actually saw twice in the theater because it was possibly one of the most insane movies I'd, I'd i'd seen in a long time around when it came out it's just so, so interesting and provocative and again You're talking like, serious like, insanity there yeah um <laughs> yeah so Lars, he would always come forward, even whether it be in pre-production or even sometimes in the case of Europa, he'd have a book, literally with the whole film, like a like an animatic, you know, which is very early oh, days. Wow. for the, uh, And that's the only film he's actually done like that, but he's very, very well prepared. And he's also a bit like, you know, the great Polanski and there are other directors, Soderbergh, people that can take a fucking camera apart, they can take the Nagra apart, they can take the, 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 the tape recorder apart, they can take the fucking editing suite apart and put it back together again. He knew his mm. stuff. He went through school, tradition-wise, and he's an original thinker and visionary, but he's also, then, when I was working with him, understood a great deal about technology and therefore could respect you for the t trouble you're in. Because there's one thing for sure, he may come with sometimes a quite preposterously simple, provocative idea, Lars, but it would between the, the lines and underneath the worms at the top of the tin, there would be a horror show of complexity that would have to be solved by the team, a combination <laughs> of cinematographers and designers, and certainly in the case of you know, his, his, uh, his um, SFX people and VFX people, I mean, they're always complicated, his films. Uh, but they come from a very simple idea usually, which is very ingenuous. But I mean, when I met him and worked with him, I had 20 years of him really, and we had a, as prepared as he was, he worked with some great cinematographers before me. But, um, you know, Lars was very, very important to me at a time, a, a provincial man who's never really left his country unless he's in a mobile home and feeling very safe. And when I scouted Breaking the Waves, which is why I really started to work with him, I scouted everything within close proximity to railway stations because I knew he was going to either be on a train or travel in a mobile home. He wasn't going to get a plane anywhere. So I kind of knew his his. DNA and understood him and loved him and he was very important to my development very early on in my learning process wise I probably watched The Element of Crime five times in a week and thought what was that you know I was watching Tarkovsky I was watching other people I was watching The Sound of the Music I was watching other things but what was that it was so beautiful to see something so maverick come out of a little local local world you know and in that way he's a he's the 
a prima example of me of a person who can work in his local safe zone, but it can communicate as a microcosm out to a massive, massive world, you know, beyond the far icebergs of Greenland, if there are any left, and right down to Patagonia, he can communicate, you know, and he's inspired, and that's, that's a, a great legacy. So uh, you brought up Dread, and Dread was definitely one of the movies that I, I think is uh, underappreciated. It maybe I, I, I don't know. I, I think it was such a brilliant and beautiful-looking film, which I believe you shot stereo 3D, correct? correct. Yeah, yeah, shot 3D stereo. We built rigs with Paradise cameras, and uh, we built small handheld rigs. We kind of broke a lot of rules. I was together with, which I have to say, it's like dogma and understanding the rules before you mess around with them. I was with the most sophisticated, intelligent, you know, stereoscopic thinkers and, you know, 3D cinema filmmakers at that time, I think, in the world and with Alex Garland's very original imagination and mind together. And I was in good hands, but we wanted to mess a bit with it and we didn't particularly uh, adhere to the the favourite lenses and stuff like that. And we built handheld rigs that one could discuss how well they work. But the high-speed stuff and... Um, I had a great crew of people and we, we, we had a very thin allegorical script, as you well know. It's a man with a teapot on his head, really, not to offend all the Dread fans out there. You never see his eyes in the whole movie. You never see his eyes. And we didn't do what Sylvester did and take it off in the first scene. We, we stuck our ground. But hell, it's difficult to, to make and it's difficult to do. And we were in South Africa. It was a great experience. And I'm very fond of the people around that. But I mean, I've worked a lot with DNA Films, which is Andrew McDonald and Alan Reich and all their team. I work with a lot of people I still work with on the technical front. Alex is a, a wonderful man and, as you know today, a very original thinker. And I think he's, in a, he's a marvellous brain, very valuable to us in the industry. And, you know, his recent work, his son with Rob Hardy, is also excellent. So good for him. But uh, I love Dread and I think he is a slightly ignored, probably because of its, its fanzine. Uh, maybe it's not the greatest of film. It hasn't got exactly got the dramatic curve of Strindberg, you know. And it's, uh, it's it's not trying to though. I mean, like it's 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 trying to adhere to the comic, but uh, and I never uh, full disclosure. I've never read the comic. No, um, no, I, I, it's bullshit. I think it's violent and distasteful. But I wanted to, I wanted to be Alex. We really wanted to make a work of art, really, and hopefully commercial success. And I think it's ticking over between you and me. I think it's ticking over over the years. I don't think they've lost on it, but it didn't. Well, get- I think that it's one of those movies that's kind of a secret handshake among among people who really uh, connoisseurs because. Uh, I think it was one of the better of the 3D movies that came out during that whole 3D boom, whatever it was, 10, 15 years ago. But also there is, like you said, it's an art film pretending to be an action film in a sense. But the action, I, I, I feel like if you look at it through the lens of kind of your previous work, I feel like it takes a lot of the kinds of techniques and stuff that you had messed with and then applies it to straight genre film. Like it, it's just a straight up genre movie. It's an action movie. It's kind of a siege movie. And, and you sort of touched on that, but like, how did how did you and Alex Garland go about kind of uh, uh, tapping the the art filmness in a big action film like that? Well, I mean, I mean, in general, I consider it my my duty to challenge whatever genre I seem to be slowly attaching myself to at the time, be it The Undoing, which we talked about earlier, or Dread, or I can find plenty of other films, even the road movies that I've done, or Lars's films, we're obviously attacking everything. But uh, quite a few films I've done, I feel it's my duty, together with the team, at the centre of it all, artistically, to, to challenge the official algebra of that genre, because if you don't challenge it and question it and, and adjust it, then you're just going to produce something as maybe a different story but with the same language and the same kind of tendencies and same narrative structure that's been done before and that's boring I think you have to challenge things and I think you have to do it 
consciously and not just be a, a provo and just fuck it all and just throw I think you have to have a soulful connection to that, an intellectual idea behind it, which we have to say in the case of Dread and writer-director now Alex Garland, there ain't no loss of in- intellectual and intelligence there. He's a very bright gentleman and thinks a lot about what he does and what he writes and... It's very interesting. He's also a very, very, I have to say, in all the directors I work with, he's in the top three as the most open mind and open-hearted person. He listens to the images. It could almost be to his own expense if he listens too much to the potential of the image and what he can do, but I don't think that's the case. But he listens openly and addresses what the image can do in relation to the word. And that, as a writer, is a very interesting mm. point. And I think the reason he's capable of that is because he is a writer. And as a writer, innate, you know already as a writer the inevitable pain that as soon as you give your work up to an adaption and then to a director and then to some visual knob like me as a DOP, <laughs> right? and then the designer, we're all chipping away at that essential virgin product that's come out of some person's mind in the case of Alex he knows about that person he knows it's going to go somewhere anyway so why and I've seen him in an interview talking about this why the fuck do you quibble about that and get overprotective about something we know that's the nature of the beach it goes out into the hands of other people and then as a director if you're a writer director it's fantastic as a cinematographer if you're working with a writer director it's fantastic because you're working with a man who's written or the woman who's constructed the words and is now leading it into a visual medium. And that, I have to say, in the case of Alex, in the case of Oliver Stone, to name somebody else, it's it, and Lars, Lars von Trier, they're three biggies for me because they are writer-directors. And there are others, and I'll always embrace them. You know, I'll always embrace them. So I, I also wanted to make sure that we talked about uh, Ron Howard and uh, well, you shot two features for Ron. And, and I mean, even in general, there's a bunch of directors like Danny Boyle, Thomas Vinterberg, Lars von Trier and Ron Howard, who you've worked with multiple times. And they're all honestly, I, it would be hard to come up with four directors who, whose films were more different from each other's, too, in a way. Uh, you know, they're they're also very, very different, but uh, they, they all kind of meet with your style. With Rush, you took on uh, Formula One racing and made something and, and a true story, a true historical story about Formula One racing in 1976. That was a, both a period piece, but also just like a very visceral look inside what it's like to be a Formula One racer and, and competitiveness. And I think it's one of Ron's better movies or one of my favorites of Ron's movies, uh, just because it taps into the same kind of thing that he does. He did with Frost Nixon, in fact, same writer as Frost Nixon, which is not to really have a movie about a protagonist versus an antagonist. But it's like you're kind of seeing two people kind of fighting with themselves in, in, in a sense. But I don't think he'd ever shot a movie digitally. I don't think Ron had made any digital features before that, if I'm not mistaken. I could be. He might have shot. I mean, Ron, Ron is a first and foremost, Ron, Ron is a wonderful human being. And he has an openness and an open heart, good mind. And I think when we met, we met on a, on a common ground of, of rather unknowing. He didn't know anything about Formula One. He knew about NASCAR. They just go around in circles and turn left, right? In a cage. <laughs> now, at least we turn right in fucking year. We took, you know, there's a bit of wiggling here and there, for God's sake. But uh, anyway, uh, all respect to NASCAR, it's terrifying. But he, you know, we, we, we didn't know, and we, had, we, and we, had to, we had to sit down and talk about this stuff. And, and Ron was very, oh, he doesn't come there pretending, sitting behind all his mobile phones and his, you know, his hat and pretending he knows all about it. But what do you think? He comes on board and says, look, I actually really don't know very much about this. You know, look, we've got to work this out. And this, and he just, that's the open heart approach that, means you learn much quicker 
Uh, I also remember uh, one of the more sexy scenes we had to do with Chris Hemsworth uh, when he, they come home one night and James Hunt one of his many you know conquer, conquering moments and Ron didn't know he said he came up to me I remember this is quite personal but he said you know like my friends talk to me quite a lot about this when I'm doing scenes that have a certain sexual content it's not my it's not exactly my forte I think he said it's not you know, I don't find it easy you know so any, any suggestions you have <laughs> that, come along let's talk about it I really loved his approach I'm just taking that as an example Rush is is a historic film. It's a genre film, yes. But uh, again, you talked about style and said maybe these directors meet me and there's a certain style in common. I hope sincerely, for my sakes, if not for anybody else's sake, it's not a style. I think what is important is the, prior to that, is the approach. It's the approach mm-hmm. the cinematographers that maybe can echo, you have to talk to the directors about that and ask Oliver and ask Angelina and ask Danny, what's it like approaching a, a project with Anthony? They probably all say it's hell, but it's the approach that's more important <laughs> than the style. It's not the style. If we get recognised for style as such per se in simple terms, that's a failure. That's that we fail. I'm, I'm not, sorry. I, I no, no, I'm not. That I don't mean you. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Okay. Sorry. That's just me picking up on it because I'm a bit sensitive to that. But it's approach, and I think as far as the rush is concerned, which I adored doing, very hard film to make. We had no money. You know, the film was in the hands of other people where they were had a budget five or ten times the size, and there was a bit of, you know, bumper cars and swapping around. And then suddenly it's Ron, and I remember getting the job. I was in Nice on the beach, and I came in covered in sand and talked to Ron. Howard, who was asking me about it. I didn't know Ron. And in the background was Andrew Wheaton, who's a wonderful producer, who was standing, wobbling his head, almost <laughs> amusingly saying, oh, my God, it looks like we're finally going to work together. It's like teasing me. Oh, no, he's, oh no, it's going to be absolutely. It was very funny. I remember something in the, vein, in the vein of that. And I remember Peter Morgan, the writer who writes these films about, you said it yourself, these two pillars, these, these pillars, that Frost Nixon, you know, Hunt and, and louder. It's pillars fighting yeah. each other. Other examples. Going back to Ron, we didn't know much about it. He fell in love with the fact that I'd forged all my um, Formula One racing driver autographs from when I was a kid to such a degree that I couldn't actually remember which ones were real and which ones weren't because I was really good at forging. And I used to go and see Formula One when I was a kid. And I remember this weird in early stages of my puberty and sexual development. I remember standing there feeling enticed by the whole supermodel landing in helicopters and the panache of the top models and all the stuff that you can't even talk about now without offending somebody. And then suddenly it was a little pop. It wasn't a big bang like, you know, like a, an A-list stunt accident. It was just like a little puff and a bit of smashing glass and there'd be a decapitation, you know, in front of you, like 20 yards away where you have your ice cream in your hand and you're thinking about what a sexy environment is. So I remember Whoa. this complexity of Formula One in the 70s and up into the 80s, culminating in Senna's death, where the, 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 the industry moves too fast for itself and its own safety and people were dying like Minka dying in Denmark today. And it was terrible and it was complex and it was a sexy business with a lot of money and they lived hard and died young. And I was drawn to that. And what I basically very quickly talked to Ron about was how can we convert these Formula One cars into coffins on wheels and get the audience to understand that. And I literally thought coffin on wheels. And I put myself in the car, in the cockpit, and I sat there. And I, together with my team and all the wonderful people who helped me and my inventors, Jacob Bonfils, who builds cameras and does things for me, Rupert Perry, the many people on my camera team building and engineering again, a bit like Slumlord, but every time a film, 127 hours, I end up engineering together with engineers and my camera team new or alternative ways of telling a story with different technology because each story can take you down that road if you want to do it. 
And I would never have been able to make 127 hours in that slot canyon with, you know, normal size cameras. I had to find something different. In the same way on the cars, when we didn't have the money to rig everything and shoot it with, you know, you know, plates and green screens and blue screens, we just had to find a way of doing it and go rock and roll and bring the experience home to the audience. Middle class, female, male, you know, old, young audience. And I think we did something special on, on Rush that I know is close to Ron's heart. And I, it was lively and visceral and genuine and truthful, I think, to a sport that was almost a blood sport. I mean, it, literally in that movie, Nikki Lauda almost almost dies. Uh, gets and and Nikki Lauda was around when you guys were shooting too, wasn't, wasn't he? Yeah, he was there. Advising. He was there. He came and went. And he some of Daniel. I was with Daniel the other day shooting a commercial with Daniel Boru. It was lovely to see him again. And Daniel spent some of his prep time flying around the world as one does with Nikki Lauda, you know, but uh, and talking to him. So it was a great base for for Daniel. Chris was a joy to work with there as well. I did really love him. It was a very difficult call for be it an Aussie or an American-based Aussie or whatever to come into Britain and play that kind of flamboyance and that debonair sexuality, that vulnerability that Hunt had. It's very hard. I think Chris, in all respect, because everybody talks about Daniel's performance as well, but I think Chris got it a, a long way down the line and a very difficult, difficult forte to, to master but I think he did and I have to say we had 150 yards of asphalt you know 27 miles outside northeast London in the rain and we had to make that look like a lot of places in the world together with cutaways and it was a pretty complicated film for me technically to do and I personally think in all honesty from the heart putting my head on the block again and confessing myself to be a, a humble human being I feel that film was overseen visually even though we got some honour we got some I felt we were overseen I felt I was. I think it was a great piece of work and a great team effort with no money. And but you know, people see it and people write to me a lot about that film in the same way they do Dread. And it's not always the films that score the points and the accolades that yeah. necessarily are the, the closest ones to yourself. You know, that's a very honest thing we have to confess well, to. I, I mean, I, I completely agree, and and I'm biased as I've I, I've mentioned on the podcast before. I actually worked a little bit on Rush, although I was never on set. So I had seen all the archival footage of Hunt and Lauda, and then I saw your stuff. You know, like the stuff that you guys created, and it was. Uh, one of the things I appreciated was that you didn't really use visual effects very much to do what you were doing. You did most of it practically. You added things like street signs or whatever, to, like like landscape stuff in the distance was, was yeah, the CGI stuff. Yeah, inflatable dolls on the, st- on the ground. So if you go through frame by frame, you'll see a few nasties. There's a few inflatable dolls in the background on the stands if you stay there too long. And uh, <laughs> for the McGuffins. And, uh, and uh, you know, it's a lot of lighting changes, a lot of lighting, a lot of heat, a lot of filtering, a lot of approach, you know. And where Ron was very trustful to me, which I think is a very, I really want to comment and and thank him for that. He did a lot of the prep work, you know, with and without me, but they were going through hours and hours of archive material as a director. And as a, you know, Ron's a visual director, but he's also intellectually looking at the material and what tells the story. I had to come yeah. in and be a pretty devil's advocate and say, uh, if we're going to build, if the philosophy is to build on the archive and me try and make modern formats look like that, find a happy meeting place in the middle. I, he had to trust me to say, I have to have the right to go through this with you and with your editors and say, that isn't good enough and that can work, that can't work. And he allowed me that. He allowed me the trust and the time to go through it and filter through and jettison some stuff that had been chosen because I just didn't want to replicate that. And we found that palette that has a sort of sexy, visceral, attractive look, but has also a hist- historic correct look as well in the primary, primary colours. And that was based a lot on some of the 35mm stuff from Monaco and some of the Italian Grand Prix stuff that 
on the Ferrari story with Loudest Toy and, and some of the stuff in Brands Hatch, some of the civil study. It was stuff that was specifically good enough, which I could then go in and build on. Uh, there, there's a real grounded feeling to the movie. Like it really feels like you're there. It's, it's, so, uh, it's so brilliant. Well, I think that's uh, a great place to leave it. And uh, I always, this is where I always ask people if people want to find your work online, uh, where can they find it? But I feel like your work is everywhere. But uh, do you have a, a web presence or Instagram or anything where people can uh, interact with you or see your, see what you're up to? I'm not. I'm kind of, some people think I'm some kind of digital genius. I'm certainly not that. Some people think I'm an analog tombstone. I'm not that either. But I, I'm kind of interested in both. But I, I'm pretty um, frustrated, to be quite honest, about social networks and seem to be capable of living a life without them. You have like three three more hours in your day than I do, so congratulations. Well, and 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 your films are everywhere. Films are found, and and uh, as we kind of said at the beginning of this, if you want to see uh, your most current work, check out The Undoing, uh, which is currently on HBO and HBO Max, and uh, is 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 gorgeous and intriguing, and uh, and and really, it, it's an amazing an amazing series. So I hope everyone checks it out. So once again, uh, just thank you so much for for coming on. Uh, again, this is uh, kind of a fulfillment of what we'd hoped that we would ever be able to do when we started doing this was to speak to people like you. And we always talk about the uh, art, craft, and philosophy. And you brought so much philosophy, and and uh, a lot of people do that as well. But I, I just I just love the philosophy of your work. So thank you for for your amazing work, and I can't wait to see what you do next. Ben and Amelia, thank you so much, guys. And to all the viewers and listeners, it's all good. Good luck with it. Keep making dumb films. Keep making them. But thank you. Thinking Images. So that was Anthony Dodd-Mantle, a uh, once-in-a-lifetime thrill for me personally to get to get to speak to somebody whose work I admire and love as much as his. Yeah, that, that was really terrific fun. I'm so glad that we were able to make that happen. It did have a couple of false starts, but uh, we finally made it happen. And boy, was it great. Oh, yeah. Totally worth the wait. So, Ilya, I hear tell that it's that we have to pay some bills here. That's right. We got to pay some bills. Uh, you know, our good friends at Aperture, they, uh, they're sponsoring uh, this episode. Uh, they've got a thing coming up about the same time this episode will drop on December 10th. They have a big, huge sale going on, and uh, it's going on through a lot of different dealers. They're, they're doing essentially like a live call-in sort of online event, and uh, one of the places that you can buy stuff from during this eight-hour live stream event is Hot Rod Cameras. And so, of course, if you're listening to this and you want to save a bunch of money on some Aperture gear... Uh, log in and uh, or, or contact us and uh, Hot Rod Cameras will will hook you up. We'll we'll be your dealer of choice for sure. That's awesome. Yeah, and, and it's all kinds of stuff. And uh, they're going to start shipping the new 600D Pro, which is the brightest light that they make, and it's it's really powerful. It's re- it's really incredible. I think a, a lot of people, it's going to change the way they work. Sweet, sweet. So, uh, I, I, can you say that date again? What What is the actual date of it? Yeah, that's December. 10th and this episode will be out by then so everyone who subscribes to this show uh it's going to appear in your feed you're listening to it and then bloop you know there you go you can you can log into the aperture holiday sale sweet will it be in the show notes or uh, will they need to go to your website uh it'll be in the show notes excellent so if you're listening to this check out the show notes and go buy yourself some aperture stuff that that's right or you can go to hot rod cameras or you can go to the aperture site all all this stuff will be around there or you can google the words aperture holiday sale 2020 i'm sure it'll come up and now, short ends. So, Ben, it's uh, time for short ends. What's uh, what's your, your short end this week? I actually had one that I was all excited to talk about, and then I got I derailed myself yesterday. Uh, and I know I know that I have talked repeatedly on this podcast about the streaming network Shutter, 
which for in in the in the sense of fairness, I have worked for them because I made video palettes for them, but uh, I have no allegiance to their content one way or the other. I just like it. And uh, they have a documentary that I think encapsulates a lot of what we try and do here on this podcast. Oh, so we always like we say it at the beginning. Our our, our uh, wonderful British uh, voiceover person uh, says it. We say it to every DP when we bring them on here, or director, or anyone that we bring on that we talk about three things: art, craft, and philosophy. Right? Like we're not here to talk about tech. We're here to talk about art, craft, and philosophy. So there is a documentary on Shutter called Leap of Faith, which is about the making of The Exorcist. And it is possibly the most in-depth pulling apart of every creative idea I've seen in certainly a long time. Uh, You know, it's a full feature documentary, and it's basically just an interview with William Friedkin. Hmm. You know, like regular old interview coverage. And then they cut to shots from The Exorcist. They cut to behind the scenes stuff from The Exorcist. They cut to other movies that he was inspired by or paintings. Like it's a Magritte painting that inspired that iconic image of Max von Sydow about to walk into the house. That is so iconic. They talk about where the music came from. He basically just lays it all out. Every scrap of what makes The Exorcist The Exorcist. Um, and I think even if you've never seen The Exorcist, you would find this fascinating. I, I, uh, full disclosure, even as a horror movie fan, I don't find The Exorcist to be the scariest movie I've ever seen. I think it's because it came out really before I was watching horror movies. And so the stuff I watched kind of stood on the shoulders of The Exorcist. But I've seen it before several times, and I really appreciate the artistry and the craft of it and what they're doing. And it's just amazing to hear William Friedkin talk about it. And in so doing, he talks about some of his other movies. Uh, One that comes up a lot is a movie he made called Sorcerer. That might be my favorite Friedkin movie. Uh, That's a a remake of the, uh, I think it's a Japanese movie called The Wages of Fear. Hmm. He just lays it all out. And I'm pretty sure that if you don't have Shudder, you can get a 30-day free trial if you go to their website. I think it's, I I personally subscribe to Shudder. Uh, again, not being paid to say any of this, but I think that this documentary, which I kind of looked at, it's been up for a few weeks and I kind of kept kind of circling it. But because I'm not like a raving fan of The Exorcist, I, I didn't jump into it. And when I finally did, I was like, why did I wait so long? And also, I really want to see more documentaries done like I think it would be fascinating to see, you know, a documentary about Fight Club and have Fincher kind of talk through every single one of his creative decisions or, you know, there's there's so many movies that you would love to see something like that with and especially you know like Friedkin's not like 400 years old but he's an old timer he's not going to be with us forever it's good to have this as kind of a a standing testament uh to what he did and there are other good docs on Shudder there's one called Horror Noir that's about black people in horror movies and kind of the history of black representation in horror movies that is super fascinating and I would love to talk at great length about that but right now I, th- I think uh, Leap of Faith is is definitely worth your time if you like what we talk about on this podcast uh, you know I'm just going to give a quick shout out to Owen Reisman who of course uh, shot that and won the Academy Award for The Exorcist and uh, I, I've had the pleasure of, of meeting him a couple of times in the past and total professional really you know an, an incredible talent and uh, he worked with Friedkin I think it was on the French Connection and has done a bunch of stuff um, there's actually a uh, ASC magazine article on uh, Owen Roseman talking about uh, the filming of The Exorcist. So now that you are deep into this, Ben, I'll chat message you this link if you want to check it out. It is a 
I don't know, probably 2000 word and photo, uh, oh, yeah. expose I'd love to see that, that uh, goes on and on and on and uh, has a bunch of B- BTS photos, which you probably saw in the documentary. But if you want to take the exorcist to want to the next level, uh, I'll send this to you too. And you can, you can check it out. Totally. I'd like to also shout out Augie Hess, who edited my, my feature alien Raiders. Cause he worked for Friedkin on like, I forget how many it was. It was I think it was like five or six features, including the uh, in 2000, they re-released The Exorcist. Mm-hmm. And uh, Friedkin doesn't mention Augie by name, but he does talk a little bit about stuff that they put back into The Exorcist in the in the 2000 re-release. So, uh, Ilya, what is your short end this week? Well, as it is still uh, D. Lensber or... Glassmas, Mary Glassmas. What did we talk Mar- about last Mary Glassmas. Yeah. Mary Glassmas. Okay. I feel like it's important to, to stick with it for December. I have, I have a couple of shows I could talk about, but no, I'm going to talk about lenses. So uh, my apologies to people who tune out when you, when you hear me talk about lenses, but uh, Tokina released a 40 millimeter Vista lens. So the Vista lens series is Tokina's premium high end, totally professional set of lenses. And they uh, compete very, very nicely alongside some of the best glass in the world. And what's amazing about these lenses is they tend to be around $6,000. They're rel- which sounds like, Hey, that's a Honda. That sounds like a lot of money compared to some of the other manufacturers very out there. used Honda. I mean, like that's like a 1998 Honda. You could get a 2004 Honda for that. So I mean, come on, it's, you, don't, you don't have to go back that many decades. $4,000 or $6,000 is like, you know, yeah. A brand new Honda is going to be no, like no. 25 grand. Yeah, and some some lenses from some other manufacturers are going to cost you the price of a, of a new Honda. This is a, a used Honda. This is fair, a, fair. Okay. So, but I, we t- should use the Honda scale when describing all all lenses. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. going to be about like a 2006 Accord. It's a no. <laughs> Uh, here's the thing though. The 40 millimeter is the, uh, second additional focal length that they have added to what was already a great set that ran from 18, uh, to 105 originally. Then they introduced the 135 and now they're introduced the 40. I have it on good authority that they are not stopping there. This is going to be like one of those, uh, highly professional sought after lens sets. And there's an even higher end version of it. They call the Vista ones, which have special coatings and even more special flares. But this is one of the more expensive lenses that you would have to add on. It's going to cost you $7,500 for this add-on, but the 40 is like the cinematographer's favorite. You know, that is the focal length out there that, that so many people swear by and love. And the fact that it is now in existence and that if you did buy this moderately priced uh, set of lenses, uh, a full We're going to call that like a 2012 Honda Civic. <laughs> Uh, well, no, this, this is probably more like a, a 2018. Uh, it's going to set you back around 30 to $40,000. Oh, for, no, yeah, 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 that's yeah. brand new. That's yeah. like a Nissan now. Exactly. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's a, it's an import, uh, you know, sedan Japanese car for sure. It's like, but yeah, 30 to $40,000 for a set of lenses. Now you're going to add an extra 7,500 on top of that. So it's, it's getting up there, but in the grand scheme of things, to find this level of quality from one of like the, uh, the old guard manufacturers, uh, you're spending over hundred K easy. So in some ways it's, it's a total bargain. And I, you're, I already know that there are several movies out there that have been shooting and TV shows that have been shooting with it, but they haven't quite gotten, uh, the okay to release and to say that they've been using them, but great lenses, lots of commercials, you know, and I, I'm not just touting them because I had a little something to do with the, the development of these lenses and stuff, but I, I, I've met the whole team from Tokina and they are highly impressive. And, uh, these lenses are first rate for sure. That's awesome to hear. And, uh, I, I always think it's interesting too, like, you know, cause it used to be not even that long ago, but maybe 20 years ago, like the camera would still be way more expensive than the lenses. And nowadays the camera is almost like, it's not 
disposable, but you get the Sony Venice today and it's not going to be viable for 10 years. In three or four years, there will be something way better. Not that you couldn't still shoot on the Venice, whatever. But the thing that never really changes in being the most expensive part of the kit are the lenses. The, the glass holds real value, I think. Absolutely. Well, it's analog. It's not digital. It doesn't get usurped by, uh, you know, a couple of engineers in a, in a room somewhere on the other side of the earth figuring out how to incrementally improve something. Uh, analog lenses made 50 years ago are still amazing. Ones that are made 30 years ago are still amazing. Ones that were made this week are incredibly amazing. Yeah. It's going to take a massive, massive change in the way that lenses are produced in order to change the quality from uh, where they're at right now. What instead people are getting, which is wonderful, is just more different colors of paint, more brushes for your, your toolkit, and different lenses create different effects and you know really what we do is we split hairs when we at at work when we talk about you know one versus another but really there's not a lot of bad lenses being made these days all the lenses are really good and some of the lenses coming off the the assembly line now are, are the best lenses ever made which is incredible awesome so who do we need to thank this week as opposed to literally every other week Hey, you know what? I got a call from a, a, uh, a fan of the show today. I actually wanted to talk about lenses. We talked for about 90 minutes. I'm just going to give a shout out to Matthew Peak. Matthew, thanks for the phone call. It was a lot of fun to connect with you and to uh, to talk about all the different things. So so there's someone who we don't thank every week. There's, oh, there's someone different. We've never thanked Matthew Peak before. We're thanking Matthew Peak right now. It's so. about it's about fucking time we thank <laughs> Matthew Peak. Matthew Peak is is a diehard, so he he is always listening. He told me he listened to Wally Fister, and uh, yeah, I was very happy and moved to to have a conversation with him. It was great. So well, okay, we, we we thank you for your listenership and uh, buy lots of lenses from Ilya. That's all I can say. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. I, I appreciate that. Okay, let's thank uh, let's thank our producer. Let's thank Alana Cody, who uh, you know gave us none of the words that we we said today, but 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 should. Have. Oh my God, how much work did Alana do getting uh, the Anthony Dodd Mantle interview lined up? This a, has a been uh, yeah. this has been a quest for her uh, that probably has taken Two over years. a year. And it's not that Anthony was difficult or anything. No, it's just that he's he's a busy international <laughs> cinematographer. He's always all over the world. He, yeah, you know, trying to arrange your schedule my schedule his schedule and time zones and work and everything else is a monumental task and she pulled it off so that's great i i, I do remember when she said if we could get anthony dodd mantle uh, when are you available and i was like whenever i will i will move <laughs> well, heaven and earth to, to i will make any time my, my i will just wrap my son in bacon and let the dog watch him so i can interview <laughs> anthony dodd man mantle and, and, and how did that go how was the bacon on the boy uh delicious okay <laughs> All right. So let's thank Ben Katz. Ben Katz, who uh, edits us together and, you know, tries to keep us from sounding completely like the imbeciles that, well, at that least we totally I are. Yeah, sometimes. A hundred percent. Yeah. yeah and, good, uh, good job. And lastly, as always, Kay's Alatrachi, who uh, gave us every scrap of music you've heard on this entire podcast. And maybe he listens to this one because Anthony Dodd Mantle's kind of kind of his kind of guy. Hmm. We'll see. We'll, ha- we'll have to yeah. ask him. See if yeah. He yeah. You. <laughs> Hi, K's. If if you if you listen to it, uh, my I, I'll save it for next week. But my short end was something that uh, did turn into a conversation with K's because it's somewhat techy, and mm. I and as soon as I saw it, I was like, K's, is this, is this for real? And he was like, Oh yeah, oh yeah, everything's going that way. And I'm like, Really? I've never heard of this. 
So maybe well, I'm just way behind, but you'll have to wait till next week to find out what that is. <laughs> well, we'll have to lure in K's and get him to listen to an episode. It'll be great. <laughs> we still uh, need to interview him. I haven't uh, done it. It's my all fault. Right. All right. Well, we'll make it happen. All right. So, so Ben, I think that wraps us up then for another episode of the Cinematography Podcast. Thank you very much. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.